Welcome to The Hive Podcast, a new 10-part series with me, Natalie Nahai, exploring technology's impact on our personal, cultural and political lives. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube and join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. If you enjoy the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes as it helps spread the word and makes it easier for other people to also find this content. And now for the show. Anjali Ramachandran is an editor at Story Things, a content studio in London that also publishes How to Get to Next, a non-profit funded by the Gates Foundation. This project explores the intersections between science, technology and culture and how these things are changing the future. I first met Anjali several years ago through a project she co-founded called Ada's List. It's a community for women who broadly work in science, technology, engineering and maths, and it has since grown into a global network that is helping to change communities, workplaces and the industry for the better. In this episode, we'll be discussing identity, biometrics and culture, and exploring how technology is impacting society and everyday life, especially in emerging markets. So um, thank you very much for joining us today, Anjali. It's a pleasure to, to be talking with you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So can you tell us a little bit about your work at How We Get to Next and why it's important? Because I think it really is important. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, absolutely. So um, How We Get to Next um, came out of a um, visual project, actually. It was um, an accompaniment to Stephen Johnson's How We Got to Now. Uh, the book, then a TV series, and this was the editorial component of that. Um, and when that um, the TV series finished um, and the book was, you know, released, um, there was the idea that this needed to continue because it was exploring some really interesting themes. And so it has a life of its own now, um, exploring things that have to do with uh, science, um, technology, and culture very broadly. We, as of last year, have sort of focused on creating series, so multi-episode series that explore one topic in depth. We've uh, looked at pandemics um, over quite a few episodes uh, written by Simon Parkin and edited by Duncan Gere. It's called Foul Plague. We looked at the relationship between humans and technology um, and and how um, the interaction between the two is changing. The lines are becoming increasingly blurred through a series called Human Machine, edited by Ian Stedman. And currently, I am actually editing a series on identities in the modern age called The ID Question. Um, and that came out of some um, research work um, that we did with um, Caribou Digital uh, at the beginning of last year called The Identities Project, uh, just funded by the Omidya Network, that specific project. And the ID question is an extension of that, um, looking at how identity has evolved through the years, what it means to most of us uh, through the years, how it's, how the definition of it has changed, and what people uh, need to be thinking about when they think about identities, as it were, in the modern age. And so what are some of the themes that you unpack in the identity question? We look at um, digital identity systems. So the identities project and the reason we created the ID question as a series um, is because of the work that we did last year on um, 
India's National Biometric Program, Aadhaar. Um, and that essentially aims to bring all one, one billion plus of uh, India's uh, residents into the single digital identity system. And it's come up against a lot of criticism. It's come up against a lot of um, issues, data leaks, privacy, uh, what you'd expect. But there are its supporters as well. And what we wanted to do was to take quite a factual look at it, um, but also try to unearth some of the stories that very often are not spoken about enough in discussions of this nature. So what people on the ground actually feel when it comes to the implementation of such a series, you know, you know especially when you're, for example, um, a child where the uh, access to primary education depends on your being able to produce a specific identity card. Uh, we look at what happens when you're homeless and you don't have an address to call your own. What then? You know, How do you get an identity card in that kind of a situation? And so we um, started off looking at these very, very specific real experiences and how they relate to identity systems more broadly. Um, our second episode looks at uh, pri privacy and uh, data online and uh, what it means to be the recipient of multiple emails that, you know, actually have quite private uh, information in them, things like bank details, uh, when you're not the intended recipient. You know, what does it mean when there are uh, breaches of data where you might be affected, uh, especially with things like um, the very recent um, Cambridge Analytica discussion that was released over the weekend, where it was found that more than 50 million Facebook profiles were sold um, for political campaigns. And uh, in our most recent episode, we look at uh, what it means to work in the modern world and how definitions of work have evolved from factory towns that were built by you know, one company, for example, to the gig economy of today. So the again, work itself has changed so much in the time that uh, we've been around in the last, uh, working at least, the last 20, 30 years um, as adults. And what does it mean when... You know, you ask someone, you meet someone um, outside and you ask them, you know, what do you do? That's almost always one of the first icebreaker questions. But, you know, when that word itself has so many different connotations, I think it's really important for us to think about how that relates to our identity. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next couple of uh, episodes will be looking at uh, the issue of refugees, which is a very real question when it comes to identity, um, and uh, the question of culture and language and how that relates to identity as well. So some very, very interesting questions to do with uh, how we define ourselves today. Mm, it's fascinating. And I think one of the things that I really enjoy about the work that you're doing and the ways in which you're approaching this question is that you're looking at it through different cultural lenses, because I think it's so easy, um, and the tech industry has been widely and rightfully, in my view, criticised for this, it's so easy to look at technology and progress through this very uh, Silicon Valley-oriented lens, which is just, it's, it's one specific kind of lens. Um, and it doesn't allow for the real... I don't know, variability of people, depending on who they are, where they are, what their experiences might be. Um, what are your thoughts about the ways in which the when yeah, the ways in which technology shapes our identity? Do you think that having the technology that most of us adopt come from somewhere like Silicon Valley, do you think that that shapes the way that we perceive ourselves? Or do you think it's less straightforward than that? 
I think it does. I mean, I think it very much has to where technology is built has an effect on the kind of technology you build. Um, and when mm. most uh, technology is built by a certain kind of person, you automatically have that in mind um, as your uh, key user or your most common user. And very often that's not the case. Um, and it's with um, the ID question, everything we do and how we get to next, we're very, very keen to make people continuously uh, be aware of the fact that today technology has literally leveled the world, so to speak. So the experience of someone in um, Asia and Africa is as important as someone in Silicon Valley. Just because most products are built there doesn't mean that their users are there. So in, in today's uh, terms, the fastest growing markets are you know, in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. So by excluding the experiences of those you know, parts of the world, you're actually excluding uh, the potential to um, cater to you know millions and billions of people, actually, uh, if you consider China and India alone. Um, and the very real experiences that can make for a much more interesting, uh, compelling product, because people who live in markets where you're literally leapfrogging technology, so they don't even need laptops in many parts of the world because mobile is all it takes for them to find out what the price of a crop is on a day-to-day -day basis so that they can you know, call and fix prices with their customer directly and not have to rely on a middleman. So I think technology has a lot to do with, um, well, creating a much more equitable, equal world for everyone and where it is built and who it is built for is as there are as important um, things to think about as uh, what you're building. And I think that's something that uh, people in Silicon Valley uh, or very, you know, Western focused parts of the world don't often uh, think about. How do you think that technology is empowering people in parts of the world that haven't yet been considered enough? Do you think that it's changing the way in which they see what's possible and enabling people to create new technology that the rest of us could benefit from? Because I'm really hopeful for that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I do is I uh, write a newsletter called The Other Valleys, which focuses on uh, emerging markets. And it's really, really inspiring to see the kinds of projects that some of these parts of the world are focusing on, because the scale of problems there is so huge as that is at completely a different level to, to the kind of problems that, um, you know, we're used to in the UK and the US. And um, they focus on very real problems to do with education, to do with literacy, to do with um, access or ability to disability, for example, and politics uh, very often. And that has the potential to change um government systems, for example, when you're focusing on uh, building more efficient voting systems or more efficient algorithms that can help you um, identify where uh, blood banks are, for example. And if you're in a rural part of the world that doesn't have access to that, the kind of medical equipment that we do, then it's important for people to be able to understand where can, you can easily get access to medical information that can save lives uh, very, very quickly. So I think it's really, really important to think about the kinds of uh, problems you want to solve. Um, having said that, I don't think it makes sense to just pick a problem uh, where you don't have real experience of it. The most successful problems obviously are those where you have a real story to tell because you understand the problem. Um, and that's where I think it makes sense to spend time learning about what's going on in the other parts of the world, um, the kind of stories people have to tell, the kinds of problems they're facing and how technology can really help solve some of those problems. Mm. And so I wonder, bringing it back to the biometrics question and the research and the piece that you've been writing on biometric 
systems being deployed in India. In terms of balance between positive and negative ramifications, what do you think uh, is on the horizon for that? Do you think it's going to be deployed? And what do you think that might mean for society, for the economy, for individual rights? Just just a small question to kick us into that direction. Very small, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very small question. So um, one of the things we've uh, really explored, I think, and come across in uh, terms of our research for this has been the fact that, you know, it's not just uh, India is obviously the biggest example of it. But, you know, Estonia is, is leading the, the e-resident uh, and the whole digital identity uh, field in many ways. And, and they're grappling with issues like, um, you know, data leaks and privacy breaches and things like that. Um, and then when you have it on a scale of the level of uh, something that India has um, it's it's just explodes to another different level altogether, and it m- means that you have to pay a lot of attention to what your um, goal is. So Aadhaar, when it was started, was originally built to plug leaks in um, government handing out handouts, basically to uh, to citizens who qualified for it. But after that, it started becoming um, available for anyone to plug into through what's called the India stack, where um, it's sort of like making making the API available, sort of like that. And lots of people have used that basic base to um, build out their own enterprises. And one of India's biggest um, telecom companies used it. Uh, it's called Reliance Geo. And when their database was hacked, that, you know, by um, association meant that the data that was in um, India stack was also compromised. And though these are not problems that people think about when you build uh, a system that is ostensibly to just transfer cash directly to the recipients. And I think that's a big, big learning. I think most com- companies, actually corporates and governments especially need to think about when they are implementing a project that starts off as something but has the potential to grow into something much, much bigger. What are the ramifications of uh, growing it into something that um, you would you want to do? Obviously, you want systems to grow. But have you thought through the implications of what happens when you allow other people to plug into your data? How secure is the data? How anonymized is the data? You know, what happens if a certain percentage or proportion of your database gets leaked? Does it does it mean the entire database is exposed or does it mean you have safeguards at different levels to ensure that only certain levels get exposed and things like that? So I think, and I, I'm gesturing wildly with my hands here <laughs> uh, to indicate uh, the different levels. So I think that's a, there are a lot of ramifications for um, projects like this. Um, I think, you know, when I went into this um subject. I was actually quite positive about it. Uh, I don't want to to say that I'm very negative now, but I think I'm just much more aware of the issues that are involved. Because on a a face-to-face, very basic level, um, I think think it's a good thing. I think digital identity identity systems can simplify a lot of um, um, requirements that people have. And this came through from the the research that we, that um, Caribou Digital did um, for us in India, where they actually spoke to, to people from all fields. So people who are from, you know, the lower income levels of society, who um, are forced to have multiple uh, identity cards, and then 
uh, folded into this one system, um, Aadhaar in this case, have said actually to researchers that um, were working with us on this project that it makes makes sense for them and it's really simplified their lives to get this one card that is accepted by city officials, district officials, state officials, you know, central government officials, um, and um, you know they they've stopped being hassled by uh, local um, city officials that often came to them for bribes and so on. Um, so I think there are definitely definitely positives the negatives obviously are, are many and that's what we often hear about um, as anyone who is uh, familiar with technology and uses it on a day-to-day basis um, is aware if you once you get into the law and the data aspect there's you know there are rabbit holes to go down um, so I think it's important it, it, we need to be aware of both the pros and the cons I think a lot of projects uh, don't do enough due diligence or they have one goal which then becomes a, a movable goal it doesn't stay put and that changes uh, what that whole project was about uh, and I think I don't want to sound all doom and gloom but I think it's very important to be realistic and be practical when it comes to um, any discussion of something like identity in uh, today's day and age because there are so many things involved it's not as black and white as you'd like as a- any of us would like it to be. Mm. And I think especially as biometric um, technologies become more and more commonplace, it's increasingly important that we make sure that the systems that we use are secure. And I think the thing that, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of complexity involved in this discussion, this debate. But I think some of the things that seem like really obvious, practical uh, steps that we can take are just simply not implemented. So things like making sure that there's end-to-end encryption, making sure that the data is anonymized and that the metadata that surrounds it again is sort of kept to a minimum so that you can't then use that and sell that. Do you think that there is um, a likelihood that our governments will actually step up? I mean this is something that I've been exploring with a few of the other guests on the show but it's a really important question that I feel like now is the time to push for and to get right. I think it's a hard question because, you know, with the UK government itself, we all know, you know, they they were trying to implement digital uh, identity um, overall a few years ago, and then that was shelved. Um, and it, rightfully in many ways, because, you know, a lot, a lot of people had uh, enough criticism with it to prevent it from going through. Um, I and there are governments doing it, uh, or at least following through, like Estonia, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, there are governments who want to learn from what India is doing just because of the scale. So I know countries like Fiji and Malta and Mexico have actually inquired about how they can use um, the process that India has followed for Aadhaar in their countries. I think, I think the personally, I think the way to go would be um, to, to do enough uh, due diligence and have enough technology at your hands as a country like Estonia does. But to be aware that problems of a country like Estonia, which has about w- less than one and a half million people, I think, uh, compared to the problems of India, which has over one billion. I mean, you're talking about, you know, uh, a scale is an exponential level difference uh, in implementation when it comes to potential problems. So I think it's very good and important to look at what a country that's already so digitized and quite advanced um, as Estonia can do. But I think it's important to be aware that when you're talking of emerging markets, uh, that have very different levels of literacy, technology literacy, but even basic uh, educational literacy. Um, it's uh, unlikely and uh, almost um, unfair to think that that level of um, accuracy uh, and fidelity in many cases of 
data can be expected because there are that many more places where uh, data can be leaked. And that has happened. So one of the, the biggest criticisms is that, um, and this is true of America, from what I understand, is that, um, is that many leaks happen from within the system. So by officials themselves. Uh, in India, it's uh, definitely not unheard of. I mean, local gov- local officials uh, bribing um, uh, or getting bribes to uh, to give data out is is quite common uh, or to get access to data uh, or give access to data is quite common. So um, the, these are problems that in many cases you'd argue that a country like Estonia doesn't doesn't have on that scale um, when you're talking 1 million versus 1 billion. So I think governments can and should uh, ideally do it because I think there are many benefits um, to it, uh, but I don't think it's easy. And I think there are a lot of uh, complications along the way that uh, governments have to be prepared for, depending on the um, situation and the societies you're dealing with, dealing with the populations you're dealing with, um, you know, education, literacy. Um, I think it's important also to think of diversity and inclusion. Uh, and that's something that we are exploring through the ID question as well, through simple two minute videos. We're looking at how diff- difficult it is for a person who is blind, for example, to be able to access um, things uh, as simple as, you know, a bank account in an ATM. Not all ATMs are Braille um, specific or catering to to uh, Braille users, for example. And so, uh, and when you're a, a woman who comes from a very orthodox uh, society, you might not um, be happy to get your finger suddenly lifted and put on a, an ID device by a male bank agent, for example. And so these are very real issues that um, governments and societies have to be aware of and prepare for when they are going to or want or even planning um, um, an identity system of of any scale. Mm. So I'm curious to hear if you've come across any interesting, unexpected technological um, hacks for how we get around some of these larger problems or any kinds of um, projects that you've come across that you think actually could influence the way in which we use technology with the identity question or in life in general to help create a greater sense of inclusivity? Sure. So there are projects that are very um, serious about trying to give the user better control of their data. There are projects like digi.me, for example, which um, lets individuals import their own data, which is scattered around different websites. There are models like MyDex, which is actually a community interest uh, model which is really, really interesting. Um, and I think, what, what, as they say, so they, they talk about the difference between the private sector model where the organization collects data and is responsible for its safety. Uh, but when you look at a, a community model, it's very, very diff- different because you're not, you are, you're not bound to um, expose any um, personally identifiable data at all. Um, and it's the, the aim is not monetization. It's more just about empowerment for their own benefit. Uh, when you look at the um, ethnographic anthropological uh, perspective, I think it's very important to do actual user research with different groups, as many different kinds of groups of people as possible. So, uh, you know, look at the experience of uh, of young people, of older people, of people who are disabled, of uh, people who come from different ethnicities and backgrounds. Um, and I think that 
just a, a smattering of the experiences of those kinds of people or kinds of uh, groups rather will give you an idea of how um, inclusive your product and your your technology platform needs to be because you can't build it just for you know people who are 100% able 100% connected to the web on a, on a high speed broadband uh, connection so i think um, it's important to be able to put yourself in the shoes or at least read about or research the uh, experiences that people in very different fields of life and walks of life have and explore different models because, um, uh, you know, as a as a government or as a corporate, you're not bound to, to sell your companies or sell your users data to make money. There are different models you can use, like the community interest model that I just mentioned. So when we're thinking about models of business and mm-hmm. we consider platforms that we all use, such as Facebook or Google or Gmail yeah. or Twitter, or, you know, all the big ones. Um, Are you seeing any models that you think are promising for these large scale platforms that they might be able to switch to? Or do you think uh, it's going to be a case of smaller, well, startups creating something that has a very different blueprint from the ground up that then ends up being adopted at scale? Um, well, realistically speaking, so there are a number of different small players doing some really interesting stuff. The bigger players, I mean, there are some, obviously Mozilla, for example, is one. They're doing uh, really important work uh, with regard to trying to make technology accessible without compromising um, uh, in users' data. Well, at least in comparison to the Googles and the Facebooks of this world. Um, the smaller players are doing some really important work. Um, I don't know if they'll get the scale unless a company... Um, of the size of a Google or Facebook buys them. Having said that, you know, I recently saw, I think my first or second Fairphone in the wild. Um, and it was, I think, quite heartening to see that there are people going to these different models of technology, not just going for an iPhone because it's there, um, but going for, you know, a, a, a way of, um, a, a mode of living and a way of using technology that speaks to their to their values um, and personal um values so corporate values personal values whatever it is in life um i can't say that i see any particularly encouraging signs from the facebook's the googles and the twitters of the world i mean twitter struggling with you know what they want to do to monetize themselves facebook just i mean every couple of months there's a big story and the latest one has just literally broken um and i i don't see that one going away in a hurry especially the links with you know the media and the politics and whether it is a media company or you know whether the whole psychological gaming aspect i think is too big for them to to you know stay away from right now or to not have a viewpoint on um and and google as well i mean the way the the reason they make all these companies make money is off um selling our data i mean as they say if you don't uh, pay for your product you're the product being sold so i think it's hard because i used to work in advertising and um i know exactly how much money there is in selling uh, audience data to um clients and corporations and brands that that want to target you online um and it's i i don't see a very a simple model at this point but there are a number of communities coming up um like um project vrm at harvard's um center for internet and society uh, which is vendor relate focuses on vendor relationship management which is flipping the whole crm aspect so instead of customer relationship management you talk about um 
you as an individual uh, managing your relationship with different vendors, and that puts the control back in your hands. And there are a number of uh, small companies and startups that are playing in this space and doing really interesting work, uh, but I don't see them scaling at the moment. And it, and the tipping point will be when one of these big companies does um, uh, manage to or is, is sufficiently interested to buy uh, these smaller ones and take it mainstream, I think. Mm. So I wonder with with some of the other work that you're doing, because I do want to bring this into the conversation, with Ada's List, with the work that you have, well, yeah, with the technology that you've used to help connect people, to create change through community, through culture. Um, And recently, of course, we've seen a huge amount of change with women's marches, self-organising, with the Me Too campaign, uh, and all the different campaigns that have come off the back of that. What do you think is happening at the moment in the world that is yielding all of these ways of kind of trying to change our cultures using technology because there really seems to be a groundswell of I suppose kind of active optimism people wanting to change something and actually taking action not just online with technology but also taking it offline and physically showing up to make change what do you think is happening there? I think that um, as you know generations come in who are in incredibly familiar with technology they started using it at age one and two um you know and for them like swiping a magazine is because they think it's an ipad um for those generations by the time they get to college i mean the parkland shooting and the way they organize around that the college students walking out um over the last couple of weeks uh it's that is in itself an excellent example of community organizing and i think whether it's whatsapp or um uh Back in the day, I think it was Facebook uh, during the days of the Arab Spring. But now it's tools like WhatsApp and even Snapchat and uh, Instagram a lot of people use as well. Um, These are tools that um, the people of today just use without um, blinking. I mean, it's just a way of life for them. Um, And I think what's happening is that it's, it's just reduce the friction in getting things done. All you need to say is that I'm going to be here at this place or uh, at this time, or um, if you're interested in uh, this specific issue, this this rally or uh, march is happening here. And I think it enables people to see very, very quickly who um, is sympathetic to their cause, uh, who how many people there are. The, it enables people to get together to uh, coordinate um, and hammer out details and and just get things rolling in a very, very uh, quick and rapid way. I think the flip side is that it's also easy for um, illegal activity to be done. You know, terrorists have used uh, platforms like WhatsApp, for example. Uh, From the positive side, though, as I just want to say, flag that as, you know, something that we need to be aware of. Um, But from the positive side, I think these organizing tools have reduced the friction and made it easier for people to connect. And at the end of the day, all what humans want is to be heard, to connect um, and to get together. And um, these are tools that are helping that happen on a scale that's uh, unprecedented and really, really simple and really, really um, inexpensive as well. So I think that's what's happening. Um, women have also for, for you know, decades um, had to do a lot of what they do uh, quietly under the radar. They haven't been able to speak to others who, um, or at least connect with others, someone else on the other side of the world, for example, who happens to be a yet another uh, woman of color 
who is who belongs to the specific generation and is working in a specific industry. Um, and so when you enable those conversations to happen, I think a lot of uh, magic can happen. Um, and uh, people become um, very brave. There's also a lot of transparency. So you don't have to go through hoops to, to figure out what's happening where. Um, and I think that's really, really important for um, shaping the world that we live in. And I think that's where um, technology and organizing can play a really, really huge role in um, building the world that we want to see, as as cliched as it sounds. <laughs> I think it sounds uh, wonderful, actually. So I know that we're coming to time. So I've got three questions that I'd like to close with. The first question is, when it comes to technology's impact on culture, on community, maybe on humanity, depending on how high you want to go, um, what's your greatest concern for the future? Ah, great question. Uh, very thought-provoking, at least making me think a lot. My greatest hope is that people will use technology as a force for good. And where it isn't, then they get together to shut it down. Um, because I think it's important to remember that um, at the end of the day, technology is a tool. Um, it, it reflects its users. And so if we want to use it, for good, then we can do that. Uh, and if we, if people want, don't want to use it for good and use it for bad, then that can be done as well. So I think it's important to, as a hope, to hope that it will be used for uh, the betterment of society. Okay. And if you could give people one action that they could take today to fight for a more hopeful future, where we're building things that serve society and shutting things down where they seem to go against the values that we might share, what would that action be? It would be to go and speak to someone that they've um, never spoken to before in terms of um, the background uh, of the person that they intend to speak to. So if you you come from a predominantly white neighborhood or you um, you come from predominantly um, upper class um, environment and you haven't had the chance to, to volunteer with kids in a lower income school, then go do that. See the kinds of conversations that they have, listen to the kinds of conversations that they have um, and, and try and um, try and think about what you're doing um, that can help people like them. I think that's important because just living in your own bubble is um, limiting. And I think getting out of that bubble is uh, quite empowering and can uh, help people create a lot of positive change. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can find resources and links on the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes and join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.